few years ago, there was a very famous TED Talk by author and speaker Simon Sinek. And his primary uh, point in his talk was all about start with why. Why defines the how. And I completely believe in that. However, starting with why is not the hardest part. The hardest part is to stay with why. And this is true in any business, any organization, any individual. And it's true for any church. And today, I want to talk about our why and how we're trying to stay with why. It's been said before, the main thing is keeping the main thing the main thing. Because organizations like people have a tendency to drift. A few years ago, Peter Greer, the president and CEO of Hope International, he wrote a book called Mission Drift. In it, he observes that as an organization gets older, it can become difficult to remember the reasons why it was founded in the first place. The result is what he calls mission drift. Mission drift is when an organization diverges from its original mission statement, from its original intended purpose. And this is something that doesn't happen suddenly. No, it often happens slowly and subtly, little by little over time, one choice, one decision at a time. For example, did you know what Harvard University's founding mission was? Harvard University was established in 1636 to prepare ministers of upright character. Can you believe that? That Harvard University, when it was originally started, was founded for the purpose of training men to be ministers in the church. Today, Harvard University does not even remotely resemble their original purpose. And if we're not careful, the same thing can happen with the church of Jesus Christ. And so part of my responsibility is making sure that we keep the main thing the main thing. To do that, I want to implement one of the most important leadership principles that I've ever been taught. And this is something that you can apply no matter what area of life you are in, but especially in leadership. This is great for businesses. This is great for nonprofits. This is great for education. The principle is simple, but it's powerful when implemented. That principle is leaders are repeaters. Leaders are repeaters, which simply means that leaders stay on message. They repeat the message. They say it over and over and over. They stay on the main thing, keeping the main thing the main thing. It takes a while for vision and why to stick. And that's why as a parent, if you're a parent, oftentimes you probably wonder, how many times do I have to say this to my kid? How often do I need to tell them, stop fighting? How often do I need to tell them, put your shoes up? For me, how often do I need to tell my boys, you need to put the toilet seat up before you go, and you need to put the toilet seat back down after you go. How often do I need to say this? How often times do you have to say to your spouse, how often am I going to have to say this? That's why as a boss, an employee, a teacher, a friend, you might wonder, how often do I need to repeat this? Well, if the message is worth implementing, then it's definitely worth repeating. Let me give you a business example. 
For those of you who are, are fans, who enjoy Chick-fil-A, whenever you're at a Chick-fil-A and you say thank you to one of their staff, one of their team members, what do they say? That's right, my pleasure. I'll tell you one of the things that I like to do. I like to have a little fun with the Chick-fil-A employees, and so if you're ever looking for a good time at Chick-fil-A, maybe you'll try this. But what I like to do is I try to create a scenario where one of the Chick-fil-A employees has to say thank you to me, and then I get to say my pleasure, and then it's like it's flipping the script, and they get caught off guard, and they don't know what to do, and so we get in this like endless cycle of thank you, my pleasure, no thank you, my pleasure, and it's a lot of fun, so maybe you want to try that. Since we're talking about Chick-fil-A, I have to tell you that my kids are going through some serious Chick-fil-A withdrawals right now. Um, when we lived in Texas, we lived less than a half mile from a Chick-fil-A, and so my kids were raised on chicken nuggets, waffle fries, and sweet tea, and now we're like an hour from the closest Chick-fil-A, and I don't know what we gotta do. I don't know if there's somebody we need to talk to. I don't know if we need to get a petition going. I don't know if we need to make some phone calls, pull some strings, but I think between this group in here, we can do something to get a Chick-fil-A a little bit closer. I don't feel like I'm asking for too much, but something, let's go. The late founder of Chick-fil-A, Truett Cathy, he launched this idea of saying my pleasure many years ago at the company's nationwide convention of all their franchisees and all of their staff. And so just imagine his dismay when he started visiting stores and he would say thank you and he would hear in reply, you're welcome. Well, rather than get angry about it, Truett just began saying my pleasure over and over. He began repeating this because leaders are repeaters. It's estimated that it took about five years for my pleasure to stick. However, the next time you're at Chick-fil-A and you hear one of their employees say my pleasure, you'll now know where that came from. My point is this. It is extremely important to stay on why. And today, I want to talk about our why. To help us stay on why today, I want to remind us the answer to this question, what do we want to be known for? What do we want to be known for? This is a great question for any organization. If you're a business person here today, this is a great question to ask your team. It's a great question to ask your customers to see if they're experiencing what you want them to experience. It's a great question to ask for a school as an individual. It's also a great question for us to ask ourselves as a church. What do we want to be known for? Well, to help us answer this question, it's helpful to get some outside perspective in terms of what an organization or what a business or what a church is currently known for. So let's take the church in general. The, the church in America right now, what is the church known for? There are a lot of answers to that question, and I think it would depend on who you would ask, right? But, but what I want you to do is I want you to think of that question from the perspective of someone who doesn't attend church. What would their answer be? Again, I understand we're making some generalizations here, but I want you to see if the following statement might be a good one to consider when it comes to unchurched people. Many people are more familiar with what the church is against than what the church is for. And if this is true, and I think it is for a lot of people, no wonder a lot of people don't attend church. 
church isn't for them because the church isn't for them. So let's take this guy for example. I want to show you a picture of a guy sitting on a couch, okay? This is the average guy in our community, right? Average guy hanging out at home. For this guy, church isn't even on his radar screen, okay? When he wakes up on a Sunday morning, church isn't even an option that he's even considering selecting. And while it's not only about church attendance, it is about fulfilling the calling that we have been given as a church. Our role is to shrink the gap between the guy on the couch and the church. The question is, how do we do this? We want to create a church that this guy loves to attend. It's not just a guy. It's men. It's women. It's single adults. It's senior adults. It's, it's youth. It's children. It's students. It's everyone. So how do we do this? How do we shrink the gap between what we are known for and what we want to be known for? We're not the first ones to have wondered this. In fact, the early church talked about this as well. There was a lot of debate about it, and in Acts chapter 15, we see what the church decided to do. But before we see what the church decided to do, I want to paint a picture and fill in the gaps and share with you the story of how they got to the decision that they made. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them to Acts 15. As you're turning there, I'll share with you that the first Christian church, it started in Jerusalem. It started on the day of Pentecost. Jews from all over the known world gathered together to celebrate this Jewish festival in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the epicenter of Jewish life. It was where all the Jewish festivals were celebrated. Jerusalem was the city where Jesus was crucified, where he was buried, where he was raised to life on the third day. And so the people in Jerusalem were ethnically Jewish, which means that they practiced Jewish customs. Now, there were several, there were several things that separated Jews from the people of, of the world. One was they were monotheistic. Jews believed that there was one God. They believed that the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob was the same God who created the heavens and the earth. They believed it was the same God who led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land was the same creator of the entire world. But Jews also separated themselves by observing certain dietary restrictions. You see these throughout the book of, of Leviticus. But perhaps the most distinctly Jewish custom was male circumcision. Circumcision was part of the covenant that God made with Abraham. And so this was a way that Jews set themselves apart from the rest of the world. It was a way that they set themselves apart for the world, from the world and for God. And so, when the church begins, the first Christians are Jewish. And they believe that Jesus was God's Messiah. That throughout the Old Testament, there were prophecies predicting that a Messiah would come. And the first Christians believed that Jesus was the fulfillment of that. All the Old Testament scriptures pointed to him. They believed that he was God in the flesh, that he was fully God and fully man. They believed that, that he was crucified, buried, and on the third day, he was raised to life again. And they put their faith in Christ. They were Christians. But they didn't cease to be Jewish. And at first, this wasn't a big deal because all of the original 12 apostles were Jewish. 
and all the people that they, that they were ministering to and sharing the gospel with in Jerusalem and in the surrounding countryside of Judea, it was all a, a Jewish context. But God's covenant with Abraham said that all nations would be blessed through him. Jesus said to his followers, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So a man named Saul enters the scene. And Saul is like a super Jew, okay? He, he's like the, the best Jew of all the Jews. He's like ultra serious about his Judaism. And so when the Christian movement takes off, he's not happy about it at all. In fact, he wants to get rid of it. You see, like a lot of Jews, Saul expected a political messiah. He expected someone to, to come in and overthrow Rome and, and give Israel their, their independence again. Because for centuries and centuries, the Jewish people had been oppressed by, by other foreign leaders. They were exiled into Babylon. And then they return, and when they return, they don't have their freedom because then the, the Greeks take over, and then the Romans take over, and so they're always a subjected people. And so there's no way in Saul's mind that Jesus can be God's Messiah. A crucified Messiah? No way. you got to be kidding me. So Saul decides that he's going to persecute Christians. In fact, he's on his way to a city called Damascus to persecute Christians when he is struck down by a blinding light, and the Lord Jesus appears to him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And that day, Saul's life was changed forever. He committed his life to following Jesus. And Jesus gave him a specific call. He told him that he would be an apostle to the Gentiles. And from that point forward, he's referred to in Scripture by his Roman name as Paul. And Paul started taking the gospel message of Jesus, and he began spreading it throughout the Mediterranean world. And he spread it to Gentiles, people like you and me who are not Jewish. Well, word got back to the, the leaders in Jerusalem that, that Gentiles were putting their faith in Christ, and that's a good thing, right? But, but they also were told that, that they weren't being circumcised. And so some of these Jews, Pharisees, who were known as Judaizers, they believed that in order for Gentiles to be saved, that they needed to put their faith in Christ and be circumcised. That it was faith in Christ plus circumcision. But Paul insists that the gospel is that salvation is through Christ alone, that we are not saved by our works. And so they gather the church together, they gather the, the leaders together to, to what's called the Jerusalem Council. See, they struggled with where to draw the line when it came to accepting the sinner, but not the sin. And what it really came down to, what the whole council boiled down to, was were Gentiles required to follow Jewish practices in order to follow Jesus. So let's read about that in Acts 15. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. You just follow along with me. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. 
The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. So James is the leader of the Jerusalem church. He's the brother of Jesus. So after all this talk has gone on, this debate back and forth, point and counterpoint, after hearing everything that everyone has said, James makes this statement in Acts 15, verse 19. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. We should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. You see, the early church decided to be for bringing people into the family of God instead of putting up unnecessary barriers that would keep them out. In other words, we need to do everything we can to build bridges and remove barriers for people coming to Christ. So let's go back to a minute to that guy sitting on the couch. What we've been called to do is to not make it difficult for him to come to God. But again, how do you do this? How do you create a church that the guy on the couch loves to attend? How do you connect with the guy on the couch who has no interest and quite possibly has already said no to the church and has already even maybe said no to Jesus? Well, it goes back to the question, what do we want to be known for? Here's our answer. We are for Wabash. We are for our schools. We are for our businesses. We are for our adults and students and children. We are for people. And the reason we are for people is because God is for them. Today we are launching a movement called For Wabash. And in doing so, we want to create three opportunities with the guy and the people sitting on the couch. We want to create common ground we want to create conversations. We want to create connections. And all of this is designed with Acts 15, 19 in mind. We want to make it easy for those who are on the couch to turn to God. So let's take creating common ground. For many people who don't go to church, they believe it's because they have nothing in common with people who do go to church. 
And as a result of this perception, they believe that we don't share anything in common with them. And honestly, that could be further, no further from the truth. I want you to think about in the last year, the way that, that this church, Bachelor Creek, has intentionally gone out into the community to create common ground with the people in our community. I want you to think back to, to June of last year. And we hosted a, a block party at Meadowbrook Apartments. And, and the agenda, the intention, the entire purpose of doing this was for us to go and love on people in our community, to grill some hamburgers and hot dogs, to have some drinks, to have uh, bounce houses for the kids, to have carnival games for the kids, and just invite people to come and hang out and let them know we are for you. Think back to last July when we did our Christmas in July initiative. And for an entire month, we encouraged you, the church, to, to bring school supplies and to bring food so that we could give food supplies to fish and so that we could give, we could give school supplies to, to different local schools and to teachers and, and to students. And, and once we collected all of those, we took them and we delivered them to all the schools. And then if you'll remember on our Back to School Sunday, we invited all uh, of the school employees to worship with us that Sunday. We invited all the students in our area to come worship with us that Sunday, and we prayed for our students, and we prayed for our school employees, and we let them know we are for you. We, we want our schools to succeed. We, we want teachers to be able to, to shape and mold our students. We want students to be able to be bold in their faith and to reach the, their, their classmates. And then that evening, we went out to all of our, our local campuses, and, and we prayed over our schools. Think about what we did with the trick-or-treat extravaganza at the end of October. A big, huge gathering in downtown Wabash. And what we did as a church is we said we want to partner with, with the local businesses downtown and, and we want to remove a burden off of those businesses from having to, to, to buy a bunch of candy. We said, no, we'll take care of that. We'll, we'll supply the candy for you. And, and we raised, we delivered a ton, a literal ton of candy to downtown Wabash so that the business owners could pass out candy to the kids walking the streets there. It's a way that, that we decided that we were gonna go arm in arm with our community and say we are for our community. You think about how we partnered with Jingle Jubilee uh, last month in December, where, where people are gathered together to, to celebrate the holidays together and we wanted to come and, and just make it a special evening for families to have fun, enjoy the holidays, and, and we said, we, we want to be a part of that. And I can't help but think of, of a decision, the decision that, that we made last year to pay the monthly mortgage for Lighthouse Mission. We think of Lighthouse Mission and how they took this huge risk of, of moving locations to downtown, and, and, and not only Lighthouse Mission, but now there's, there, there's several local ministries that are now operating out of that one building called Lighthouse Crossing. And what we said as a church is, is we, want to, we want to help those ministries use their resources to, to better serve our community, and so we want to pay for the mortgage. You see, all of this is done because we want to create common ground with people. Because the reality is we live here too. This is our community. We want our community to be great. This is what we have in common with the guy on the couch. We want to create common ground where we get to tell people, you want where you live to be a great place to live? <laughs> we do too. You want this to be a great place to raise kids? We do too. You want businesses to thrive around here? We do too. 
You want schools to be great? Wow, so do we. We want parks to be clean. We want people to be served just like you do. Look at how much common ground we have. For far too long, the church has had either an adversarial relationship with people who don't go to church or a non-existent relationship with people who don't go to church. And as we create common ground, we also want to create conversations. It's why we're launching our four Wabash movement. But, but it's not just for Wabash, it's for wherever you live. If you live in Manchester, we want you to be for Manchester. If you live in Peru, we want you to be for Peru. If you live in Huntington, we want you to be for Huntington. And there are a lot of different ways that we can do this. We want to create opportunities for people to ask you about this. And that's why we want you to participate in what we're calling our pay it backwards idea. On your way out today, you are going to receive one of these. It is a four car magnet. And here's what we want you to do with this. We would simply ask that you would put this on your car, on the back of your car. And one way we would ask you to consider spreading the four message and creating conversations is this week what we would like for you to do is we would like for you to go through a drive-thru and we would like for you to pay for the person's meal, the person's coffee, the person's drink behind you. So when you get up to the window, say you're paying for the person behind you. And what's gonna happen is when you drive away, that person will see the four magnet on the back of your car. And they're gonna be informed that that the person in front of them paid for, for their meal or their coffee or their drink. And this is no small thing. Because what's going to happen is then they're going to go to work or they're going to go home that night and they're going to tell their coworkers, they're going to tell their family that someone with a, a four magnet on their car paid for their drink. And this is how you create conversations. This is how you create common ground. And then comes the God part. God begins to do what only God can do. God takes the common ground, he takes the conversations, and he uses those to create connections. God can take moments, God can take conversations, and he can begin to shrink the gap between people and the church, between the lost and himself. So what I'm asking us to do today is to create common ground with the people in our community, to create conversations and pray that God would create connections. For far too long, the church has been known by what we're against. We should be known for what we are for. And this is what Acts 15 is all about. So as I close, here's a question that every church should consider. Something every one of us should consider. If our church went out of business, would the community even notice? If tomorrow morning we we boarded up the, the, the doors to this building and there was a closed sign, If Bachelor Creek tomorrow ceased to exist, would our community even notice, would our community even care? Or would there be such a tremendous void? Would there be a a corporate communal lamenting because we were no longer present? I'll tell you this. When a church is for the community and for people and deeply desires to introduce them to the love of their Heavenly Father, they become a community partner in a very beautiful way. So will you help me? 
Will you help me show our community that we are for them because God is for them? This isn't necessarily a new message. It's been the message of the church ever since the book of Acts. We're just rallying around the word for to communicate it this way. This is our why. And my role is to help us stay with why. Our why is Jesus. And this is what we do. Acts 15, 19. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Would you pray with me? Lord, help us. Help us to be a community of people. Help us to be a church that is for people, God, because you are for them. I pray, God, that today you would spark a passion inside of us to be even more intentional about being for our community, for our businesses, for our schools, for the people that you have called us to reach. And God, may we share your love with them. God, I pray that we would create common ground and we would create conversations. And God, that you would do what only you can do, that you would create those divine connections and that we would see lives change for all eternity and we would give you all the glory and honor. God, I wanna pray for anyone who's ready to make that decision to turn to you. I pray that we would, those bridges would be built, that the roads would be paved so that, so that anybody here today who's never accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior would say, today I wanna put my faith in Jesus and Jesus alone and I am coming just as I am. And God, you have promised to accept us, to give us your grace and mercy, to forgive us of our sin, to give us the gift of eternal life. I pray if there's anybody who needs to make that decision, today would be the day that they do that. And for all of us, God, I pray that we would be a people who are for what you are for. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.